I am Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through your stories and the stories of other professionals and patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed provider or practice. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can share for yourself and with your patients right away. Um, Today, I am talking to a special guest, Dr. Nicola Harker. Um, Nicola is a general practitioner who practiced medicine in the UK until 2017, when she transitioned to being a full-time coach and consultant. She's now a speaker, writer, and coach who focuses on self-compassion for high-performing individuals, and she has programs for providers, professionals, and caregivers. Welcome, Nicola. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. It's really, really wonderful. Yeah. So um, anything you want to add to your professional bio about yourself or where you're at, what you're doing right now? Not really. You you put it beautifully, but I would, you know, I would add that I'm I'm a working mum. I, I relate to the fact that many people have really busy lives. I'm a very practical person, um, probably for that reason, because, you know, the things I'm interested in need to work in in busy, um, high pressure situations. Um, and um, yeah, I'm just really excited to be here to have this conversation with you. I'm excited too. Um, it's amazing how the world of international social media and whatnot can bring people together. So I'm so excited to have connected with you. Absolutely. Um, why don't you tell me just a little bit about your story? Um, you were a practicing provider in, up until 2017. Tell me a little bit about what changed in, in your story. Mm. So yes, I was probably quite similar to a lot of doctors, a lot of high functioning women, a lot of people in the caring professions of, of all kinds in that I was highly motivated, really driven by purpose, by my job. And I, I loved being a doctor and I, and I had, a, I guess I'd formed an identity around who um, I was as a working mom, as a doctor, compassion outward flow of compassion was something that kind of came really naturally to me Mm -hmm. um but I was you know struggling after I had my kids I was spinning plates trying to be in four different places at once trying to keep up the appearance you know to those high standards that I held for myself um, and not always managing to do so not always feeling particularly great about myself because sometimes I would be brittle or a little bit tense or ratty you know not not kind of who I really thought I was and um but I was still it was no question in my mind that I would always be a GP um that was just just who I was I thought um and I had a few kind of wake up um moments during my career so when my daughter was about two and a half three years old she's now 12 so it was a few years ago um, I I fell whilst I was actually cleaning the windows whilst I also had tonsillitis and I had a fever and my father-in-law was coming to stay you know the classic yes. it's so funny when you look back and you go who cleans windows <laughs> this is the story of every working mom right yeah, every absolutely who's just managing 
all of the things. I love the analogy of spinning plates. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. And I know that this story is relatable because why was I even cleaning the windows? You know, why was I not cancelling my father-in-law because I had tonsillitis? But none of those things registered for me. I was just focused on the task. And um, so I remember this day, I um, I was feeling too unwell to go and get the ladder. So I decided to stand on a log in order mm. to reach the top oh, window yeah. of my kitchen. I wasn't very high off the ground, but, you know, me being me, I was like, oh, I can't, you know didn't really think about the fact that if you're too unwell to go and get the ladder maybe that's a warning sign I fell and I it was traumatic because uh, firstly I landed on stacked roof tiles so the edge of the roof tiles hit my spine um, low, lower spine but the thing that was actually more traumatic for me was opening my eyes lying on the floor and realizing that I was centimeters inches away from hitting my head on a stone well Oh, so, no. and, I, and this was right in front of my kids. My kids were, were really little. And, you know, that moment of like, I'm still alive. I'm, I'm, I'm OK, although I'm in a lot of pain. But that flash of, of thinking what nearly happened was was quite traumatic. And, and but right now thinking about your little kids. Yeah. So worried about mum. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was I couldn't get up. My children running to get their dad. I could hear them. He was cutting the grass. He was somewhere down the garden. And and I look back on that experience. And what happened was he helped me to my feet. And being a GP, I was like, well, I can still feel my feet. I'm fine. And I kept going. Oh. I didn't I didn't even stop then. And I look back and I just think how ridiculous, you know, what was what was going on for me? But I didn't go to the ER. I took painkillers. I didn't actually go to the ER for three months. Oh my goodness. And in that time I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sit. I could, I could, I just couldn't get comfortable. I was in so much pain. But it's kind of helpful for me looking back to realize that's how disconnected you can get from your body, from your own being when you're working in the caring profession. And I really did. And, and, and the funny thing is, is that at three, three months, I crawled into the ER and I got told off for waiting so long to, to present. Really <laughs> so, right? <laughs> and they scanned my back. And the, the thing that happened then was that there was no fracture. There was just significant scarring. So then my brain did the whole, wow, you're making so much fuss. You haven't even broken your back, you know, get on with it. Like why, why are you not that much going on here? Exactly. Exactly. Like I felt shame mm. for the pain that I was experiencing. It's, it's, it, but I look back, I like, whoa, but so that was a really big wake up call for me. And yet what I did was I went back to, I continued working as a GP, you have to sit down for really long hours. Mm -hmm. But I it was only when I realized I couldn't sit for 13 hour days that I started to think maybe I needed to do something. And, you know, it, that was a long time ago. And so much has changed for me. But it was the start of like the tipping point. But that was in uh, 2013. And Can I ask you a question, Nicola. Mm -hmm. So I think about that moment where you stand up and you're like, oh, I can feel my toes. I, you know, I can feel I'm not paralyzed. I'll just kind of press on. Um, can you talk a little bit about how 
as caring professionals, especially medical professionals, we're taught to disconnect from our feelings mm. and bodies. Do you think that yeah. was part of it? I, I absolutely do. And I think I think it's so important. When, when I went to medical school, I thought they were going to teach me how to be amazing, to deal with all the really difficult life and death situations with grace and wisdom. Mm-hmm. And actually what they taught me at my medical school anyway, was that, that I heard it time and again, in order to survive, you have to build a wall. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I keep hearing it even now in, in the wow. medical profession, like there's, that's the belief. There's no other way. Mm-hmm. And I actually, as a medical student, I did fight against this. I, my, my instinct was like, I'm not sure about this. This doesn't feel like what I was expecting. And I actually trained as a counselor while I was a medical student in my in evening classes because I wanted to understand more. I wanted, you know, to, all of that stuff. But but the, that was the training. And it, I think this is a huge, huge mistake. Mm-hmm. But I but I do relate to why it said and, I, and I've thought about this a lot during my career. I think as a person coming into um, all of those difficult situations and you're quite young when you first go to medical school you know potentially in the UK I was only 18 wow. you know maybe in the US it's a little bit older but um, and unfiltered empathy when you suffer with the suffering that you see you can't sustain it and you're afraid you're afraid of your feelings mm-hmm. and so my experience of that was that I was resisting what I was being told but but I also doubted myself. Can I survive as a doctor if I let myself feel? Mm-hmm. And it feels really practical, right? It's like yeah. you can feel that, like what you just said, I loved about, you know, um, empathizing with the suffering. And so somebody offers to you build a wall. Yeah, exactly. And that feels really practical. Yeah, absolutely. And after a while, I began to believe that that's what I had to do. And the kind of masculine energy that I took on through medical school was kind of like, yeah, you know, this is how you deal with it. And nobody was talking about any alternative to that. And yes, over time. So I was doing this for, you know, for more than 20 years over time. What I started to notice was that the wall isolates you from other people isolates it separates you from yourself so I I forgot who I was I forgot my natural qualities and I disconnected from my body and yeah when I was lying on the floor and I'd had that fall it was so normal to me that I was bottom of the pile as a mom you know in the family I was the last person um, and it was so unnatural for me by then to speak up and say I'm feeling something Mm-hmm. I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. I was so used to switching that off. I didn't see how ridiculous I was being. Everybody was coming before you, your patients, your yeah. kids, spouse. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. common. So common. It's so interesting though, isn't it? <laughs> and I can see how it happens. Yes. And I understand why that's what we were taught, but I do think it's a mistake. And I, I feel so strongly about this now that, that, that disconnect that the wall brings costs us so much Mm -hmm. and our patients feel it Mm -hmm. 
they know when we're walled in, when they don't feel like we can resonate with their suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, our colleagues, you know, we feel separate. Say more about this, Nicola, because I think that people might be listening and saying, well, I have to stay kind of armored um, to be able to help my patients. And, you know, they're not noticing, but you, you, you're saying they do, they are noticing. I do. I do think so. And I think, you know, without wanting to create pressure on any any caring professional to feel like they've got to do something more. I think it's easy to think that it's not noticeable. But as a patient, I know because I've been a patient, I've been a relative of a patient. I know that what matters to us most when we're afraid of a diagnosis or we're going for tests or anything else is less the um, scientific words that come from that professional's mouth it's more the connection the person that's saying with their eyes with their body language I see you you know I I, I can see that that you're suffering or you're struggling I've had so many experiences as a patient of I remember going through IVF and I don't mind sharing this that um, you know failed cycles of IVF mm-hmm. and the nurses who were very kind but actually being a little bit surprised, like you seem to be struggling with the fact that that cycle failed. It's like, oh, like, you know, I'm dying inside, like this is killing me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so realizing, wow, they're they're so um, used to this process, they've forgotten what it's like to be a patient. And I do think we, I'm not critical of the medical profession or of carers for being like that, but I, I, I'm really interested in helping us to have an alternative, mm-hmm. uh, some tools that help us to more skillfully mm-hmm. stay connected, connected to ourselves so we can take care of ourselves and connected to our patients or whoever we're working with that allow us to. And that's where I, I started to learn about compassion. Yeah, so I, I want to circle back to how we find this balance, but tell tell us first, how did you get to that space in 2017 where you shifted the, your career focus? Uh, actually, I wasn't aware. I'm, I was going to say I was aware I was burning out. I had a viral illness that went on for a really long time, like three months, and I was struggling to get back to my normal energy. Another sign, but I was still ignoring <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky that I um, contacted uh, like a free uh, counselling helpline for medical professionals. Oh, wow. Okay. And which is um, so the British Medical Association offered this for free and they still do. It's amazing. And I, I knew I was struggling, but I couldn't say what was happening. But the feeling I had on the inside was I want to run away. I There's no amount of holiday that will take this feeling away. And I couldn't see the National Health Service in the UK getting better anytime soon. I was feeling so stuck and I was feeling um, isolated. I now know that I was in in threat mode. You know, I was on my own with this pain. I was just dealing with workload, workload, workload. I didn't really know what was happening to me. And I, I think my blind spot was also that my identity for myself is that I have this spaniel energy. I'm an enthusiastic person. I'm so motivated. I love, you know, everything about everything that we do. And so I couldn't even see 
how this fitted with my identity, like how I was feeling. Oh I couldn't, gosh. I couldn't put my finger on it. I, you know what? I just want to pause and and say validate this for so many people that are listening, right? That are thinking, you know, I'm a compassionate, resilient person. Um, I don't, I don't get burned out. I don't get overwhelmed. Like it doesn't fit with my identity, and yet here you are, you're saying like, I had this wall up, I was getting sick, I felt disconnected. How did you reconcile that with your identity? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, my identity was a huge block to me seeing what was happening. And it was this counselor who said, you do realize this is burnout, don't you? Mm -hmm. And I could have fallen through the floor. I was so shocked. Mm -hmm. It was just, it was not on my radar. It wasn't going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that just just completely blown away when she said it but it was so helpful and it, one of the reasons that i think you know your podcast and and conversations about burnout are so important mm-hmm. is because i know i was completely like not not seeing what was happening to me and even when it was happening i couldn't believe that it would happen to me mm-hmm. but for somebody else to name it was really really helpful i have to say there was something else that happened around the same time that sharpened my focus, mm. which which might make me a bit emotional to say it, but I'm happy to share it, which is that two women that were close to me were diagnosed with cancer within the same week. And suddenly I had a, a really clear lens that went, oh, that could be me. Yes. Like I, I could I could see how unhealthy. I felt how drained I felt how and those two women one of them died within eight weeks the other struggled on for two years and died and they were both outdoorsy outgoing amazing inspiring women who were just taken like and that I guess you know sometimes that there are it's called Beckhart's change equation is that we have to somehow sometimes get more uncomfortable with where we are uh, to the point where we are less afraid of the alternative to, oh. to make a change and, so and suddenly feeling yeah. like it could be me was was that yes I mean first of all I want to say I'm so sorry um that's traumatic to have people you love suffering um mm-hmm. I want you to say again this change equation that sometimes mm-hmm. things have to get to a breaking point yeah I mean I I've you know, for me, I reframed it as realizing that sometimes the bottom of the swimming pool isn't a bad place to reach because you realize you have to do something. You have to go you back up. Yes. <laughs> and so, yes, this change equation is basically about the fact that we don't tend to make a change if our fear of the change is greater than the discomfort of staying where we are. 100%. Yes. Yes. And it's true for all of us. Yeah. Give an example of what you've seen in a client or something where there's discomfort over here and there's change process over here. And it's like, oh, which one's harder right now? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, a good example is somebody who decides to to become an entrepreneur to set up on their own. Mm -hmm. And if you if you're kind of comfortable, you know, maybe you've got a partner with a good income. And you're not really focusing on, I'm going to have to charge for my services. I'm going to have to be brave. I'm going to have to be visible. It's too easy to stay in your comfort zone. And sometimes, you know, a lot of very successful entrepreneurs actually got there through 
difficulty through realizing that they had to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not I'm not telling people to, you know, burn all your savings so that you suddenly feel uncomfortable. But it's, <laughs> it, it's definitely important to be realistic and just to go, um, am I really kind of sitting in resistance because it's a comfortable place to be? What would I need to change in order to for, for staying where I am to feel more intolerable? Mm-hmm. And then and then I'll make the change. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and it's just about the way our brains work, isn't it? We we will stay in resistance um, unless we can see the benefit. I mean, the the reverse, the other end of the telescope is looking for the benefit extension. So for me, when I was shocked by that diagnosis, there was also the focus: how much my kids would benefit if I made a change. Mm, I love and that. So that's the positive end of the of, yeah. of the equation, which is, you know, what what do I really want? I don't want to be the mum who's snappy because she's tired, mm-hmm. um, who hasn't really got enough time. Uh, and I'm not I don't you know encourage people to have to leave their careers I work with a lot of very focused career women mm-hmm. but for me I the balance was suddenly wrong you know I, I I could see how much my whole family would benefit if I changed um, and that made it easier they would get more of you back and you would get more of you back win-win yes yeah. yes so let me go back to what we were saying before about um, this idea of replacing the wall, right? Like mm. building up this wall around us as professionals is understandable. And it's like this very practical tool. And yet it's not the best thing for us. Mm. But somebody is listening right now going, okay, well, if the alternative is me being a sponge for everything that's going on, that doesn't work either. What Absolutely. Suggestion. Absolutely. And I wrestled with that a long time. You know, do, do you soak it all up and burn out or do you build the wall? What 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 else was there? And I really I thought about this for so long. What I resisted, but what I learned um, ultimately was that. When you learn the skills of compassion and starting with yourself, mm-hmm. then what starts to happen is is firstly you learn to manage your physiology in difficult situations so the wall becomes less necessary Mm -hmm. secondly you learn to identify your experience so that you can be a little bit more objective about what you're experiencing in the moment rather than dragged under by the ankles Mm-hmm. which you know was definitely I'm a very empathic person I can you know I well up easily mm-hmm. um so I really had to work hard at this to to understand how could I um yeah learn to be less of a passenger to take that tiny step back that that allows you to stay connected mm-hmm. but to cultivate skills and they are learned skills you know this is the thing I wish we were taught at medical school they're the learned skills that allow you to deftly navigate those uncomfortable feelings and and practicing self-compassion I didn't it was nothing like I thought it was going to be that's the first thing I really want to be clear about I think we all think we we know that self-compassion is be kinder to yourself but actually when I started to learn the skills I realized whoa this is so much more about learning how to stay with difficulty in a skillful way. I love that. So will you, yeah. So just take us back and define compassion and self-compassion for folks. 
So my teacher was Kristin Neff and she was a she was a lovely teacher. So I'm going to use her definition. Yeah. Um, so she um, breaks down uh, self-compassion into into easy steps. Um, the first is is to be able to notice. So when I'm talking about awareness or being able to name what's going on for you, or if you're talking about outward compassion, noticing what's going on for another being, another person, that's essential to have a compassion response. Now, that first bit is like where you can easily go straight into empathy. So there are two more steps to compassion to help with not just sort of getting sucked in. The second step is what she calls common humanity, which for me was a huge uh, revelation, actually, which is this idea that we all struggle. It's normal to struggle. And actually, for me, as a kind of high functioning medical person, I've been walking around my whole life thinking that whenever I was struggling, I was failing Mm -hmm. and that, you know, perfection was kind of the rest of the time. Absolutely. And and it was either, you know, I'm fine or I'm failing. Mm -hmm. And this reminder that it's so much more more normal to be struggling than not, actually, (laughs) like really (laughs) normalizing that, normalizing suffering and struggling as recognizing this is how it feels. This is how it feels to be in a situation with someone who's unwell or in difficulty. Mm-hmm. This is how it feels for me as a parent to feel like I'm not doing a good job. You know, the shame of parenting, you know, normalizing all of those experiences. is It's a yeah. huge one. Messy is normal. Messy is normal. Exactly. We're, we're all really complicated. We all struggle. So that's a really big chunk of compassion is normalizing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the experience and then the third step again which is a carer I think is really important is taking action not necessarily to fix but simply because something is challenging something is a struggle so when we're thinking of outward compassion this is actually quite important for caregivers because I I relate to this particularly as a GP over over the years you start to feel like you've got to be the solution yes every time yeah well you and, that's what you went to school for after all right like to fix all exactly. the problems and you have a prescription pad and you can order tests and you are the ultimate problem solver exactly and you know certainly in the UK it's like a new patient every 10 minutes and you come up with an action plan it's very rapid it's very easy to end up with all of that on your shoulders but the reality of caring or being compassionate is that um, actually, the outcomes are way more out of our control than we we believe. So you can you can prescribe pills, but somebody might not take them. Yes, <laughs> you I can mean, help them in all the time that people do nothing with. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, this idea of of equanimity, which um, Kristin F talks about, the the limits of our influence, and just recognizing that developing that wisdom that says, I can listen. I can lean in with the intention to support, but I can't necessarily fix. Mm-hmm. And what that does is I think it creates just a slight emotional distance. You're still fully engaged. You're still leaning in, but you're not ultimately taking it all on your own shoulders. Sometimes people find this difficult to, to, to take this concept because there's that feeling of like, oh, does that mean I don't, I don't take responsibility? It doesn't mean that at all. You know, absolutely taking responsibility but 
But even when you do, some things are out of your control, whether it's what else is going on in that person's life or whether the treatment works or not, or, you know, they might have a drug reaction or something completely different could happen in their lives, unrelated to all of the effort that you're putting in. So those three steps, the awarenessing, the common humanity and taking action, but recognizing that you're not necessarily fixing, that you're there to support. And that's very a very simple, brief kind of summary of self-compassion. There's a, there's a lot of layers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just think people, are, I, I'm hoping are listening and going, oh, I, I need more of this. I need mm. to hear more of this. I need to practice this. I need to, you know, really dive in. Um, you know, we're just scratching the surface here. Yeah, we are. And one of the things that I've got very interested in, the more I've got involved in doing this work, is recognizing and understanding what makes us resist self-compassion because I was clearly one of those people who resisted the idea you know when I first came across it I didn't like it Um, I didn't think it was for me you know because I was a caring professional I really get that resistance and one one of the things I had a really interesting conversation with a client just this week one of the beliefs that gets in the way of self-compassion is we hear the phrase self-compassion and Somewhere deep down, we believe we have to wait to be worthy. Mm. Wow. So a little voice in our head says, yeah, but you don't know what a bad person I am. You don't know how many people I've upset. You know, I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm very far from perfect. You know, all of those arguments come up in our minds. And the thing that really changed that for me was realizing that self-compassion isn't about waiting to be worthy for it. It's actually the opposite. We need the skills of self-compassion because we are imperfect and because life is really challenging it's like why wouldn't you be more supportive of yourself you know and it turns it around it turned it around for me because if I'd have waited till I was perfect I still wouldn't have started clearly (laughs) (laughs) I I mean I just like this idea that we're already worthy of self-compassion because we just need it to be a messy human Exactly. Why, why not be supportive of yourself, given how complex you are and given how complex life is? And I, for me, actually, there's a really powerful overlap between self-compassion and high performance mm-hmm. that, that instead of sabotaging yourself with self-criticism or denying yourself compassion, why wouldn't you include it to help you to be more of the human that you want to be? That's what really excites me. It's, um, it's the idea that prescription, right? It's absolutely it's offering to to caring professionals. Um, let's build a wall. Mm. It's it's saying what? It's saying there is another way that you can stay connected to yourself. You can still be that uh, giving human, that compassionate, caring professional, and you can learn the skills and the wisdom to make that sustainable and that for me that word is so important if it's not sustainable like what are we doing to our health professionals if we're letting them just go again and again until they burn out it's so important and so it is possible it's absolutely possible I want to say one more thing before we move on to rapid fire too, that I've become keenly aware of talking with you and, and in some other roles before we hopped on the podcast today, Nicola and I were talking about, you know, some volunteer I did in a workshop for Ukrainian medical professionals. 
I think that sometimes um, people think, well, this problem with healthcare and how I feel as a healthcare professional, it's just in the US or it's just in the UK or it's right. But I don't know about you, Nicola, but I'm finding it's just, it's everywhere. If you're in a helping profession, this is pervasive. Absolutely. And, and actually that's a really, it's really important to share that because yeah, I was recently on an international call with healthcare providers from all over the world. This is everywhere. This is an issue in every system. And certainly in the UK, people love to think it's just the NHS that's falling apart. But actually, the moral injury of of knowing what a good job looks like and not being able to do that job, the pressure, the workload, the unrelenting stress, particularly in the last couple of years, but even before that, um, yes, we're all we're all struggling. And actually, I do think it's so helpful to for us to connect more about this, that, that this is an international issue Agreed. in every country, in every country. We're not alone. And again, the common humanity part of that is kind of helpful, supportive. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, OK, I'm going to transition us into some some rapid fire here at the end. Um, and you, you've, you've kind of alluded to this first one already. But what do you think is one thing folks get wrong about self-compassion? Well, I think that, um, yes, I've already alluded to the idea that we have to be worthy. I think the the other thing that is really, really challenging for any of us, actually, is that there are a lot of words around compassion that we've soaked up as we've been growing up that meet that feel like an obstacle to self-compassion. So, for example, um, self-absorbed or navel gazing, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the the fear that if we, it's sort of soft and fluffy and that if we become self-compassionate, we'll lose our motivation and our high standards. Mm-hmm. And I really, you know, there's loads of research out there, but but I just want to share my experience, which is I was terrified of all of that. Mm-hmm. And actually what I discovered is the opposite, that when you have the skills of self-compassion, you're less afraid of failing because you have the resources, the resilience to 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 keep going, to get back up, to to learn from your mistakes. And so I've actually been the opposite. I found that I'm much more motivated. I'm much more excited to try new things. Um, I'm more bolshy, actually, much more likely to call something out and say, you know, have some fierce compassion. So I think that worry that it's all soft and fluffy. um, I just really want to just throw that out the window and say, seriously, you don't need to worry. It's so isn't. It's quite, it's actually really courageous. It's not going to make you soft and fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) Stronger and and, and, yeah. Okay. Um, If you could go back um, to young Nicola Mm -hmm. in medical school, where you were already resisting this message, Mm -hmm. what would you tell her? Oh my gosh, that makes me emotional. I, I, I would, I just would want to say, trust yourself. Uh, and trusting yourself actually is, is something definitely that comes with learning self-compassion. I just didn't have it then. Mm-hmm. I, because I was young, because I was female in a very male dominated profession, I doubted my instincts and thought that I was just being a silly girl and I was being weak. And, you know, I was wanting to focus on what they used to, what they still call, I think, soft skills. Yes. I was so right that that desire to connect humans, to really see 
each other in those moments of struggle and suffering is absolutely what healing and healthcare is about. I just really wish I hadn't taken a massive detour. If I could just trust myself and stuck with that. Yeah. It's so good. Um, Often in healthcare, I think people get intimidated by professionals. Um, Can you share with folks just, you know, I'll use your term of the common humanity, but what's one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect, just a messy human? Oh my goodness. I mean, the thing that patients forget is that doctors are patients too. And we have families that we worry about just like they do. And we, we, we all struggle and we, we're all afraid. Actually, all humans are afraid. And that I know that, you know, patients coming in are afraid. Doctors are afraid of not being good enough, of not getting it right. Um, but also they're all they have the same fears about their own health and their own families. And th- there was a wonderful study looking at the top 10 concerns of humans all around the world. And it doesn't matter what, what gender you are, what race, your religion, sexuality, we all have remarkably similar concerns. And you know, for me, that makes me just feel so much more connected to every other human being, realizing that. Yeah. And doctors are, are no different. They just need to learn to bring down the wall. <laughs> um, I hope everybody's hearing this consistent message. Um, how how do people work with you? We'll link up to your website, Nicola, but who mm. who's your ideal person to work with you? And um, just talk a little bit more about that. Thank you. Um, so I love I love to work with women. I don't work exclusively with women, um, but but my most of my clients are women. And I particularly love to work with women who really want to uh, bring their power out into the world, but are frustrated by the fact that they're either people pleasing, burning out, spinning plates, or, you know, it's just not happening because the systems around them are very male orientated and perhaps make them feel like, you know, it's not happening for me. Mm-hmm. I'm very trauma focused, which is what drew us t- together as well. And I recognize that we you know, we wear a mask, we push ourselves, but actually underneath, we all have struggles that perhaps it's not always easy to share with other people. So I really love to make a create a very safe space with my clients to be able to move beyond some of those things that are holding them back mm-hmm. uh, in a way that feels completely safe and approachable. And I also, I work with uh, healthcare professionals as groups as well. So I'm, I love one-to-one coaching. It's my absolute passion. But but like you, I'm also really keen to bring this work into, um, you know, uh, healthcare providers. Actually, schools, I was talking to head teachers the other day as well, mm-hmm. um, because actually we're all the same. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter what, what leadership role we're in. Uh, the struggles are very similar. Yeah. Well, I know this audience really well, Nicola, who listened to this podcast. So um, by the time this airs, you should have about 432 new people contact. (laughs) This is what we're struggling with, right? And we all need more. Um, Last question. Um, It's 11 o'clock at night, um, which is closer for you right now than it is for me. Um, And you have a food craving. What do you reach for? Oh, um, uh, I'm a quite a savory person, so I think it would be checking the, for the Christmas crisps that are in the cupboard. Maybe they're not going to make it to Christmas after all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, you'll have to educate me. What's a Christmas crisp? 
Oh, sorry. So, okay. So, so um, crisps, what, what we call crisps in the UK, first of all, you call potato chips. Oh, okay. Perfect. Yeah. And, and Christmas means that I've hidden them in the back of the cupboard for Christmas, but they're not going <laughs> to, it's only the 16th of December or whatever. And <laughs> so, yeah, the, the special crisps that I was saving for, for another yes. occasion. Yes. It's like my Christmas cookies that are already gone. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Nicola. I mean, the, the, incredible compassion and um, tenderness that you're bringing into this space is palpable. Um, I really appreciate the work that you're doing for women and for the healthcare profession at large. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Well, and same to you. Thank you so much as well. It's been a real honor. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.